I'll be reading to you this morning from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege we have to hear your word. As we have our Bibles open in our laps, we ask that you guide us in our understanding of what we hear and what we see. And Lord, give us the strength, the grace and mercy to be obedient to where we see we need to change. Lord, may this exercise be more than just a man's words bouncing around in a room that would be a waste of our time lord we want to hear from you we want to know what you want us to do we want to be less like ourselves and more like you so speak through your word may we be good students to listen with ears to hear we ask all this in your precious name amen well, we pick up in Jonah, the minor prophet, where we started last week. And uh, we'll be covering this for a few weeks, though we'll have a couple of weeks break between now and when we pick up with this next time. And what we want to do is focus on verse 4. We covered the first three verses last week. And we'll look at Verses 4, 5, and 6, though, most of what we'll discuss today has to do with verse 4. And this is where the story and the drama involved begins to build. And you'll notice that the pace of the, the things that the narrator is giving us is a very quick pace uh, where the drama turns, sometimes on a dime, where it's as if we're watching... If this were on the screen, there would be different scenes. The camera is on Jonah at first. Then the camera is on the ocean and the boat with the mariners. And then the, the camera goes back to Jonah when he's down in the bottom of the ship. And then back up topside as they discuss what to do about this and ultimately before they throw him overboard. But if the narrator's done his job or doing his job, by the time we get through the first three verses, he's already built enough tension for you to be asking at least your first question. And it seems to reach a certain uh, 
tempo, by the time we get to verse 3, where things seem to slow down and the doom begins to gather, and by the second time he has said, away from the presence of the Lord, after having said he fleeing to, to Joppa, to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, paid the fare, went down into the boat to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The question that we're supposed to be thinking is what is God going to do? Even if this is from a, you know, a self-righteous, pious, wanting to make sure that sin does not go unpunished. If it's only that, we're wondering how does this guy get away from what he's going to do here? It's here by verse 3 that the tension between God and Jonah is growing and coming together. This whole book is about tension. You'll notice that most of the Bible is about tension. We're studying through the book of John. We're, we're discussing the tension between us and the God we've sinned against. Well, this is just focusing on one individual and the tension that built between the God and who he has sinned against. But what we're going to learn as we move along is that the tension seems to be over Nineveh. That's where the disagreement lies. God says, go to Nineveh and preach against it. Jonah says, no, I'm not going to Nineveh to preach against it. And then in this scene right here with a group of sailors who are caught up in this mess with Jonah. And it's Jonah's fault, but not theirs. It seems mercy is given to these sailors after Jonah's thrown over the boat. So the sailors fit in here between God and Jonah and the tension that's built between them. So we get to verse 4, and our question is answered. What is God going to do? But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And that's where they've got problems. If the boat that they're in begins to break up, there's no hope for those that are in the boat. Our attention is immediately switched to the Lord from verses 3 to verse 4, who causes a storm so powerful that the boat is on the verge of, of destruction. It's also immediately clear that there's nowhere for Jonah to hide as far as God's presence. That's obvious. It's not said, but it's surely there. The wind described here is a great wind, which is interesting because the same word that was used to describe Nineveh as a great city. So I guess you could say if Jonah refuses to go to a great city, he's going to have to go through a great storm. Same word describes each of them. Again, the pace is very quick here. You get to verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that it was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. And then in the same verse we're told about Jonah's whereabouts. But we'll save that because it seems as if it's best to look at these one piece at a time. As far as the ship's crew and the focus on them, they're probably Phoenicians. That might not do you any good if you don't know who the Phoenicians are. But they weren't too far away uh, from, from the general vicinity. And even their language wouldn't be but slightly different. Uh, there may be something lost in translation between Jonah and these men, but very little. And being sailors, and this is speculation, but it seems as though it's likely that being superstitious seamen... 
that they had gathered to themselves uh, quite an array of other deities. Uh, Sailors were usually a superstitious lot. And we hear this when they start talking about how each one of you needs to pray to your God to see if we can get out of this mess. Where Jonah has one God, the only God. These men obviously have a multiplicity of them. So they're working the list as they pray through. As far as the storm itself, and this is where, you know, you'll have to use your imagination. We talked last week about how this story will not outgrow us, or we won't outgrow the story, rather. And there's, there's enough to be interesting or fascinating uh, for our children here. The same is true for adults. To try to put ourselves in the position of these men... I thought, as I was reading and listening to others in preparation for this, you know, one thing you can usually do to gauge the seriousness of a situation that you're in is to look to the faces of those that are professionals at whatever that involves. Um, I haven't been on many flights. Um, Two trips to Haiti, two trips to Israel. Those are the only international flights. And a handful back and forth to Tampa when I was at Word of Life and one to Disney World when we were little. I remember that because I lost a tooth on the flight. Uh, but not a lot of, of flights. One of the ones to Israel got pretty bumpy. More bumpy than I was comfortable with. But what I was told by someone else, just watch the attendants. If they look like they're about to lose it, then it's okay for us to lose it. But not until... Because they do that all the time. They know what turbulence is all about. And when it's too much, same would be true if you're, uh, if you're chartering a fishing boat. Let's say it's the one with a bunch of people on, on board. I think they call those head boats. I've never chartered a boat like that um, except in plastic boats known as fishing kayaks where you each have your own. But if you notice that the deckhands and the captain's mates are still cutting bait and carrying on with jokes or whatever, even though you might be turning green, it's going to be okay. But if they look worried, it's probably not going to be a fun ride home, especially if you've got to point that into the wind or you've got a side chop or, or, or whatever. Um, it's telling to look in the faces of the professionals. And in this account, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. All of them are afraid. Not just the ones uh, who are new to this, but the veterans as well. I've had times where I've been out, and the wind is too much for me. But my buddies want to stay, and I just wave and tell them, I'll see you later, because I've, I've hit my mark. I'm not having fun anymore. None of these men are having fun. They're crying out to their gods. This is a bad storm. And as I was thinking earlier, how to uh, how do you describe a storm? And of course, we're not told exactly what type of storm this was. It would make sense that it would be a a storm that's not a seasonal storm. These men wouldn't wouldn't make this trip during the time of the year where storms were common. So this is an oddball of a storm, likely, or they wouldn't be there in the first place. 
And when I was trying to figure out how uh, to safely fish in the ocean in a kayak, which I've done, you've heard about some of that. Uh, one thing that was helpful to me in figuring out w- when it's time to go home is something that I found that others have used. It's been around for almost, well, over 200 years. This was designed in 1805. thought it might be interesting to, at least in your mind's eye, paint the picture of the situation I'm reading about in verse 4. Uh, this is the Beaufort Wind Force Scale. And this was created by Britain's admirable Sir Francis Beaufort to help sailors estimate the wind from visual observations. There's actually 13 stages here from 0 to 12. I'll just hit every other one. And you can hear as it builds. 0 is calm. The sea is like a mirror. Smoke rises vertically. This is when I like to go out in my plastic boat. And, 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 and the Beaufort wind scales, zero. If you skip to verse, not verse, but uh, level two, it's called a light breeze. This is between one and three miles an hour. This is still okay. Small wavelets form. Crests have glassy appearance, but do not break. Wind is felt on the face. Leaves may rustle. A wind vane may move by the wind. Now by four, which is a moderate breeze, I've, I've long made the decision that plastic boat stays home. And it's only 13 to 18 miles an hour, but over the open sea, that, that's not a small thing. Small waves become longer, fairly frequent white horses. That was the old way to describe a white cap. When it's white capping, that's, that's not a good thing. And when you see white caps early, it's pretty much shot for the day. Those build throughout the day usually. In... Stage four, that's, that's frequent white horses. Wind raises dust and loose paper on land and small branches are moved. By the time you get to six, which is a strong breeze, that's 25 to 31 miles an hour. That's when they tell you to go home from the beach. Usually the evacuation orders are already there, but if you're hanging around, walk out on the pier, you can lean into the wind. It's fascinating to watch what it does to the water up to 30 miles an hour, but that's about all you're going to get to see uh, if you're behaving yourself. Large waves begin to form. White foam crests are more extensive everywhere, probably some spray. Large branches in motion, whistling heard in the power lines. Umbrellas are not able to be used. You'll, You'll ruin your umbrella in that. Number eight is a gale, 39 to 46 miles an hour. Moderately high waves, greater length, Edges of crests break into spindrift. Foam is blown in well-marked streaks along the direction of the wind. Twigs break off trees. Walking in the wind generally impedes progress. This is when you see the fellows with the news with the microphone trying to stand up straight. And um, I don't know if you saw the YouTube video where the guy was faking that and then walked off straight up. That wasn't Gale. Number 10 is a storm, very high waves, 55 to 63 miles an hour. Long overhanging crests, resulting foam in great patches is blown in dense white streaks along the direction of the wind. On a whole, the surface of the sea takes on a white appearance. Rolling of the sea becomes heavy. Visibility is affected. This is seldom experienced inland. Trees would be uprooted, considerable structural damage. 
And then number 12 is considered a hurricane. This is greater than 73 miles an hour. The air is filled with foam and spray. Sea is completely white with driving spray. Visibility very seriously affected. Over land, this is considered destruction. Now, where were these men? I think it's hard to tell. You would think that sustained hurricane would have broken up that ship, made of wood. But there's some interesting history about how these boats were went very well when they were pointed into the wind if they could continue to be and were able to be inside this storm until it passed. So the Bible calls it a storm. The Hebrew word is defined in English as gale. So I'd say somewhere between 8 and 12. A gale, a storm, perhaps hurricane force winds. But that's where these men find themselves. They're terrified. They're throwing things over into the sea. The purpose for doing that would be that the ship would sit higher in the water if it's less heavy. And then there's less risk of water coming over the sides and into the boat, which would have to be bailed. There's the purpose that they were able to do that. They deal with the storm as God had hurled a wind. It's interesting, the same word is used that they hurled the equipment over into the sea. So what you've got here is a hurl and a counter-hurl. And I, I had wondered how often do you suppose we're involved in a throw and counter throw as far as the, Lord, the Lord's planning our steps, our life, our circumstances. Perhaps something we find ourselves in is meant for our good, our learning, our development. Something's hurled at us, but we start hurling in another direction. And how often are we working against the will of the Lord? At this point, the more that we read, the more sorry we feel for these men who are doing all they know to do. And this is not their fault. And at the same time, it's about this point. And this is why I think Jonah is such a creative writer, inspired as it is. About the time we start to feel sorry for the ship's crew, we might remember there's another man on this boat. Where is he? And the anger at Jonah begins to rise about the time that the, uh, the narrator goes back to him. So what we've got so far are these old salts. And would you know it that the Hebrew word for describing a sailor is salt? In the plural. If you've ever heard old salts, that, 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 that's from the Bible. They beat us to that. <laughs> Some of you think, no, he's making this up. I'm not making this up. They were described as old salts, veterans, and they're scared to death. They're, they're, they're praying their SOS prayers. The storm still rages, and the gods they've been calling are not listening because they're not responsible and they're not real. So at this moment, narrator switches our attention back to Jonah. While the crew is topside working feverishly, crying out to their gods, Jonah's below deck fast asleep. 
And this is one of those places where when I was a kid, I thought, how? This is a storm. The noise has to be incredible. And if you think about it in the bottom of the boat, instead of pitching from side to side on the edges, perhaps he's just rolling. Of course, he's going up and down in the waves. Maybe he's insulated through those timbers from the wind of it all. Maybe he's still dry. We'll look at this in the weeks to come, but there's something to be said about the deep sleep we hear about in the Scriptures from time to time. And this may be one of those miraculous type of deep sleeps. Others have said, well, maybe he's, he's drunk. Maybe he's in trouble so much he slept himself in, or drank himself to sleep on purpose. And there's that idea. How many times would we rather just go to sleep than think about the trouble we've created for ourselves or has come upon us some reason or another? Just to sleep would be able to shut it off. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe the emotional toll of what it is to run from God has worn him out in all points, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He, he's about spent. But he's asleep because that's the way we read the story. And in verse 6, the captain takes some things into his own hands. He's fast asleep. Pagans are praying while the prophet is sleeping. If you like to make notes, that's a good one-liner just to demonstrate the contrast here. Actually, you could better that. Pagans are praying and working. Jonah is doing neither. So the captain has to do something. He goes to the bottom of the boat and says to Jonah, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now this is where sometimes your imagination can kind of run away with you. Um, I don't think there's really any harm in that so long as you don't say when you're done with your imagination that that's what this means if that's not what this says. But... Say you're Jonah, and you're so asleep that you're sleeping through a storm. And I've seen my kids sleep through some stuff that I wondered, they, they must be dead. Uh, they're, and trying to wake them up. And then when they finally do wake up, they're silly. They don't know where they are. You can see in their eyes that they're gathering information to make sense of, of, of what's going on. Here you've got Jonah, the runaway prophet, sleeping through a storm, and a pagan captain who says to him basically the same words that God had said to him in verse 1. Arise, cry out. The only thing that skipped over is the Nineveh part. But how many of you dream goofy stuff and laugh about it or are concerned about it when you wake up? About how things fit together and what it means and actually the difference between being asleep and being awake. The other night, just touched my face again. The other night, I was dreaming. And for some reason in the dream, it was necessary that I holler out at somebody. I won't tell you what the dream was, but I, I hollered in this funny type holler meant to scare someone. But what was funny about it was that I woke at that precise moment having actually hollered out at about 2 o'clock at night in our home where the way everyone's bedroom is arranged, we're pretty close. So it's possible you can wake up the entire house with little effort. Didn't wake up everyone. My wife 
thought she remembered something like this because I asked the next day. My daughter did remember, but didn't say anything until the next morning, though I heard her stirring while I laughed and wondered, <laughs> did, did this wake anyone up? Well, when I asked Livy, she did remember, but here's what she said. She said, I was having a dream where someone was hollering. And then when I woke up, I thought, well, maybe I really did hear someone holler. Why am I bringing any of this up? Because how in the world do dreams work out where at the precise moment I holler to scare someone in a dream and wake up, my daughter is having a dream about someone hollering and wakes up and hears the scream? I have no idea. That's just the way dreams work. I think they're supposed to be funny. But if you've got this guy saying this, the same words in a similar fashion to a man who's run away from God and he knows he's running away, and don't we worry about things when we go to bed and don't we sometimes dream about the stuff we're worried about or preoccupied with, I think it's very likely Jonah wakes up scared to death, having no idea where he is, being told again to do what he ran away from doing. Maybe. It's possible that he could wake up in the middle of what seems to be a nightmare, being reminded again that he's a runaway. Now what this sailor does, this is pitiful, the pagan sailor has to tell the Israelite prophet to pray. He's sleeping instead. And from the captain's perspective, none of the other gods cared about the sailor's situation up until this point. They're all praying, but nothing's changing. Maybe Jonah's God will listen. So he wants every base covered. The captain's actually a better theologian than most pagans and refuses to make this an issue of, 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 of man-sized problems uh, or to make man the master of the situation. He's going to call out to whatever God will listen. Jonah was the only man on board who knew the true and living God and he wasn't on speaking terms with him. So the prospects for this crew being saved by Jonah praying on their behalf or his prayers being answered at that don't look like a grand prospect. And you might wonder what this sounds like to Jonah because the very thing he didn't want to go do for the people of Nineveh where God had said, go preach against them, I'm going to save them. He's being asked to do the very same thing for these sailors. Ready or not, it's time to pray. We have no record that Jonah prayed for these men, and we have no record that Jonah prayed at all. Not yet. Not until he's in the belly of the fish. So let's make some conclusions. This isn't in conclusion. We're going to make some conclusions, actually two of them. And uh, you can write these down. I try to keep them simple so that uh, you aren't texting each other. What did he say? I didn't get that point. I've heard I need to shorten my points so they can be written down before I go on to something else. Number one, and this is good news and bad news. We'll look at the bad news first. Number one, God takes sin seriously. This is nothing new. It's not the first time we read this in the Bible. The Bible teaches this from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. Never do we see God not take sin sin seriously but when we're reading about a runaway prophet who immediately finds himself in a very bad storm which threatens the lives of everyone on the boat 
it's easy to see that God takes sin seriously. Now here's the disclaimer, because we'll need to be careful here. Whenever we're talking about things that we would call bad things, and then in the same sentence talking about bad things that we do, as far as sin against a holy God, we've got to be careful because some misunderstanding can be part of that consideration. This is not to say that every difficult thing that comes in our lives is the result or even punishment for a specific sin that we've committed. It, 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 it may be. But it might even be more likely that it's not. There's a lot of bad things happen in our life. Sometimes you would think that there's very bad people that should have a lot of very, very bad things happening to them and you wonder, there's an imbalance on the other side. How are they getting away with these types of things? The truth is, God's fair, He's just, He takes sin seriously, but He's the one who ultimately is the judge. Vengeance is His. So, we have help in the Scriptures to settle misunderstandings. We've got the book of, of Job for that. Job's friends thought that good people should have a good go of things, and if you're having a bad go of things, you've done bad things, and it's your own fault. And they were wrong by the end of the book of Job. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but the Bible does say that sin will bring you difficulty. The Bible does teach that. It's very clear. And a lot of these things are just common sense. I mean, we, we can't abuse our bodies and expect to have good health. Uh, we can't abuse people and expect to have their friendship. We can't put ourselves first ahead of everyone else and have a functioning society. It's going to break down at some point. Violating God's design and purpose for the things He has created is going to bring consequences. Sometimes the natural consequences of our sin are punishment itself. Now, I didn't say sometimes the natural consequences of our sins are punishment enough. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but sometimes just the natural consequences of the decisions we make are a form of punishment. You know, the, one of the best things of this is that uh, Christmas story movie where, uh, you know, they'd gotten in trouble in the class and the the... the teacher had said, because nobody confessed, that the feeling you're feeling right now is punishment enough. And the kids say, adults like to talk like that, but we all know that the punishment's way worse than the way we feel right now. That, that, that's just garbage that adults like to say to feel better about themselves. But the truth of that does play out. Some of the times, the natural consequences of our decisions... Jonah hadn't been on the boat, he wouldn't have been in a storm. There's one way to look at it. But it's more than that. God purposefully sent the this, this storm to Jonah. So when we consider this stuff, generally speaking, you know, liars are lied to, thieves are robbed, attackers are attacked, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. But we need to remind ourselves, God made us for himself. So to live for oneself apart from God and, and disobedience to God is to live against the grain of the universe. Really. 
And you can't do that without trouble. So in this story, here, the result of Jonah's disobedience is immediate. There's a great storm directed right at him. But that's not usually how it works. Usually the repercussions, consequences, natural or specific by God, tend to have their delay. It's kind of like sunburn. You don't know the trouble you've got in until you get home that evening or the next morning. The whole time, your wife or your mama is telling you to put on the sunscreen. I'll be all right. I don't feel burnt. But by that next morning, you look like one of those main lobsters been dunked and put on a plate. You're glowing. And you just feel. And then to go back out in the sun and have it shine, you know you've made a mistake. But you didn't before. And that's the way... Usually our sin works. It's fascinating here that the storm is the image of sin's consequences too. I thought this should be mentioned. It's Jonah's specific sin, but in this story it's the image of consequences brought on by sin. Even now there are things in nature that we cannot control. And even though you've heard of scandals public figures and their ability to get the right men, the right lawyers, the right folks to scrub the internet of any trace of... We'll be all right. Storms are one thing we can barely predict accurately. And we can't do anything about them. The consequences of our sin are beyond our control. And as the scriptures say, be sure your sins will find you out. It's no use sowing wild oats and praying for crop failure. It doesn't work that way. Well, that is the bad news. And you might want to look at that as God takes sin seriously. Storms are attached to our sin. There's always a punishment attached to our sin. But also there are storms attached to sinners, which is kind of the good news side of this. You'll have to look at it the right way because it might not sound like good news. Most often, the storms of life come upon us not as the consequences of a specific sin, but as the unavoidable consequences of living in a broken, fallen world. And this is where we need to put ourselves in the shoes of these old salts, the sailors. This wasn't their fault. Now, they're described as pagans. They don't know the Lord. That will change soon. And anyone takes a risk to go out in a boat. But this wasn't their fault. It's the result of their knowing the one true God, however. The storm that wasn't their fault that threatened to kill them was the very means by which they came to know the one true God. And some of our life is like that as well. Um, we got a whole Bible full of these situations. Abraham went through years of unfulfilled promises before he was a man of faith that we know in Hebrews 11. Joseph was an arrogant adolescent before he learned character, but that came through wrongful accusation and imprisonment. Moses had to learn what it was like to be a nobody for 40 years after he'd been a somebody for 40 years before he learned what God could do with a nobody for his last 40 years. Moses went through quite a bit. And I don't know that any of those men would have asked for any of that. They'd have run away from it if they could, but that wasn't their choice. 
just by part of living in a fallen, broken world, we go through trouble and trial and pain, but the Lord seems to use that to bring out the best in what He has planned for His children. So storms can open our eyes. They can wake us up to truths we wouldn't learn any other way. And again, another we've got to be careful here alert. The opening chapters of Genesis teach us that God did not create us for suffering. He didn't create us for disease. He didn't create us for viruses, natural disasters, pain, aging, death. None of that was, was part of what he pronounced as good. So where did all that start? After we sinned against him. So there's no way for us to detach ourselves. There's no way for sinners to detach themselves from storms. We're stuck with them. It's a very awful part of becoming an adult and realizing, you mean this life wasn't meant for me to have fun all the time? <laughs> no. That's what we'd want to do all the time, but the Lord has things in store for us. And having fun isn't the best means for His teaching us what we surely need to know. When storms come in our lives whether it's the consequence of our personal sin or not, Christians have the promise that God will use them for their good and for His glory. That's Romans 8.28, which is so often abused. But when looked at through this context, it makes sense. So let's look at number two. If you had number one, God takes sin seriously. And that is that sin is attached, or storms are attached to sin... And storms are attached to sinners. Number two, we might run, but God won't let us go. And I think this is obvious, at least as we know the way the story ends. Even through Jonah pitching a fit, mad at the Lord for not blowing the whole city up. Even if we may not see the hand of our Lord in the storm or His wise and loving purpose in the pain of our troubles, it would be true hopelessness to think that He had no control over such things. He has absolute control over it. Storms are not meaningless. Storms are not random. Storms are not wasted. Your pain, your grief, your loss, your loneliness is, is not wasted. There's a purpose for it. Might not fit under what God said was good. But please know that it's part of getting you back to where what God will call good is good. Jonah had no idea that the horror of this storm or the terror of the fish was actually the hand of God's mercy drawing him back to himself. Certainly we wouldn't look at it that way, and he wouldn't have. Jonah didn't know about the cross either. And this is what may be the most dramatic contrast of it all. We're reading this on the other side of the cross, having studied our New Testaments and knowing its content. Jonah didn't know this stuff. Jonah didn't know what Jesus would do. 
He didn't know what we know. That Jesus would come to this earth for the purpose of looking straight into the eye of the ultimate storm. To weather it himself. To bring us back home. In other words, our Lord and Savior will never put us through a storm he hasn't been through himself. And by that very token, he's the one qualified to be judge over what's wrong and what's right. Jesus would come here to face the ultimate storm of God's wrath to make sure that none of us were ever lost. The ship lying in Joppa's harbor was not meant to be a means of escape from God's clearly revealed plan. It couldn't be for that. But actually the most terrible instrument in the hands of God to bring his servant back into his arms. I wanted to remove that word terrible, I thought. Why would we say instrument in the hands of God to bring his servant back? Because sometimes they are terrible. But if we can believe and trust that though we might run, even though your, your boy or your daughter might run, the Lord won't let them get away if they're His. God works through storms to bring us back home. We're going to watch this with Jonah. It's easy to look at Jonah as a situation where, well, you ask for it, you get what you deserve. But I think the further the book goes, we're going to start to feel sorry for him in as much as we start to see ourselves in him because we have a lot of the same hang-ups that he has because we're sinners, we're broken. God knows what's best. But if some of this sounds fantastic, if it sounds dramatic, if it sounds a stretch or too good to be true... There's that tension again. The tension between us and our Creator, whom we've sinned against, and His promise to give us grace at His expense. And then how do we act, and what do we do, and what do we say, and how does this work? That's tension between it. And to think how we're going to be reconciled to a God who's promised to punish our sin. It's a story not unlike Jonah. With storms, it requires quite a bit of trust. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for our understanding of it that you give us as we read and as your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and ears. Lord, I ask that you give us comfort through this. It, it, uh, it, we're either headed for a storm or we just came out of a storm, or we're right in the middle of a storm. We don't really have any other options than that. And I ask that you bless this congregation, scattered as we are. Give them comfort through this, that, that in the depth of the storm, there's mercy. The storm is not beyond your control. And in some cases, you're its author. Lord, may we trust you. Grow our faith in you through our, our fear, our misunderstanding, 
And Lord, may you grow us into what you need us to be. Perhaps something useful to you in order to help others. Lord, we thank you for our church and for our ability to stay together and to remain faithful. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to this country, to us in our homes. and Lord, just to know the truth, it's the greatest blessing of all. So we thank you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.